the breath as part of uh, meditation is a very, very ancient method. Way, many, long before the Buddha. Goes back to India thousands of years before the Buddha. The Buddha gave, uh, developed some unique uses of the breath, but it had been in existence in many ways, many skillful ways for thousands of years prior. So, and the Buddha's teaching is quite ancient itself. So this could be, maybe it's, who knows how, how uh, ancient it is. Um, <clears throat> what I'd like to do is, uh, in walking over here, I was reflecting on what might be useful. And I realized that um, there very often are, it's uh, pre- confusion, there's confusion about how the breath, the role the breath can play in practice. And the person might not even know that, that, that it is. And so I'm going to do my best to clarify it uh, a bit this evening. Uh, first off, let me start with uh, all methods. Let, let's say the, the method that we're, we practice here is called vipassana, for those of you who are new, insight meditation. Uh, what can't be understated is how much this all rests on the clarity of seeing. Insight, the name itself gives it away, seeing into. Vipassana means clear seeing, extraordinary seeing, inner seeing. So this capacity to pay attention, awareness, whatever language you like, uh, that isn't, that leads to everything else that you might be interested in. And there are many other things that uh, can uh, support it or get in the way of it. So it's not a small thing. The breath is only one, one way to help that happen. Uh, let me give you an example of how crucial uh, seeing can be. This is something that happened to me a few weeks ago. A few months ago, I opened up a box and there were of uh, honey. There were gifts of a lot. And I opened it up, and one of the jars was, was broken, and there were lots of little pieces of glass. I reached in and got one finger. Uh, there were many slivers of glass in the, in the finger. Yeah, that's better. So I went to I, down the street, uh, and I took some out myself, which was pretty obvi- quite obvious, uh, easy to do. And then there was some left. And so uh, a primary care physician did the rest of the job, and it seemed fine. Then a few weeks later, about a month later, it got puffed up again and started to, be, uh, to feel uh, slightly painful. So I went once more to the physician, and... Uh, what he said was, if I can't, he, he poked around, he said, if I can't feel it and I can't see it, it isn't there. In other words, there is no more glass there. So I said, well, then how come I'm in pain? So then he said, well, I think it's just the, uh, it's just the um, healing process is w- working its way out. Um, I stayed with that, having some doubt about it, and l- let a few days go by. Then I came back, and other physicians who were on duty said, we have to get you to a hand surgeon, okay, because it was clear that there was, there were some, there was still some glass there. So I saw a hand surgeon. I didn't know the special, there was such a specialty. This person just works with hands, okay. Uh, and so the first thing, he, he, uh, he saw my chart, and the first thing he said was, um, 
there's clearly something off. Uh, I, but I don't see any X-ray. They didn't X-ray it. Your physician didn't X-ray it. And I said no. So that, then I could see he didn't want to put his colleague down, but I could see he, uh, by his expression, that he he felt that was, that was a mistake. Now, if you think about it, think of the history of science, the history of human understanding. It seems that human beings have been able to understand a lot even without microscopes, telescopes, electronic microscopes, telescopes, X-ray, you know, and now so many different ways of uh, technology helping us to see what we couldn't see before. So uh, he ordered an X-ray. The X-ray came back, and he looked at it, and he showed me what it looked like. And there was something about the size of a BB. It was, it was very clearly something there. Now, had he not used the X-ray, he would not have seen it, and he might have poked around and done his best. But here he could see exactly where it was. And he was able, feels as if the job is done, he was able to, uh, using, it was definitely minor surgery, but it was surgery. He got it out, and now there's healing. So the uh, power of the seeing, the accuracy of the seeing, clearly plays a role, played a role in the therapeutic process. Now, for us, let's say practicing Vipassana meditation, and I would say it's, it's similar in Zen and in Tibetan Buddhism, and certainly the yogas, um, we don't have technology. Our technology is our own mind. That is, we, and to begin with, the mind really does not see accurately. It does not see clearly. We may not even know that. In fact, mostly we don't know that because we're living our life often for many, many years, not realizing the limitations of our capacity to see, seeing energy. And then once you start to meditate, one of the humiliating uh, facts that comes up for everyone uh, you might have a job uh, as a brain surgeon or whatever it is. You can't look at your own brain. You find that the mind is really wild. You also begin to see how much uh, there's all kinds of views and opinions color what you see in yourself. Uh, and how do we create our uh, improve our instrument of seeing so that it can see a sliver of glass if there is a sliver of glass there? Because the accuracy of seeing is not trivial. Because as we more and more are able to see ourselves, remember this is inner seeing, which is, in speaking in general, and I, if I hurt your feelings, I apologize, it's neglected. We, most, if not all of us in this hall, are probably excellent in terms of observing certain areas that, that we're interested in, and maybe lots of things. It might be nature, it might be photography, it might be... But when we turn the light inside, or we turn our view inside, uh, I don't know anyone yet, and if you read ancient literature, it seems like even though it was a much simpler society, it seemed like it was difficult even then for people to see clearly. Uh, there's an ancient teaching story which, very simple, comes from India, and it says it too. Everyone was aware of it then. It's sort of its dusk. I use this a lot because its utter simplicity does say a lot. And if it's dust, you can mistake, as the sun is going down, you can mistake a snake for a rope. And if you think it's a snake, something entirely different happens. The body changes, everything changes. And if it's a rope, and what if it's the other way around? Uh, what if it's a snake and you think it's a rope? So the stakes can be quite high in terms of the accuracy of seeing. A lot, the teachings that you read, some of it are counter 
uh, intuitive. They, they don't make sense. Like we say, there's no not self, and that, that puzzles people right from day one. How could they not be? Who's meditating? That you know all the questions that drive teachers insane, uh, and which never get a satisfactory answer. Uh, at least uh, I'm just beginning to touch the surface of it. In fact, I discovered when I first started teaching that uh, my inability to answer it in a satisfactory way let, after I would introduce it as a teaching, emptiness, in other words, that's emptiness of self is the crown jewel of the Buddhist teaching. And then, well, what do you mean? And then all the questions start. And in, in this area where people are very educated, lots of information, have merely read everything, um, it's harder. And I, I, I discovered that as time unfolded, I taught it less and less. <laughs> because, because I got tired of looking at furrowed brows and wrinkled, you know, and, and puzzled looks and discouragement and also people not coming back. Uh, I didn't come here to be a nobody. You know, I said, yes you, yes, you did. I came here to find out who I am. No, you came here to find out who you aren't. You can leave now, even despite. <laughs> okay, so um, clear seeing is not is not uh, trivial. Okay, now let, let's c come to the breath. Uh, I'm just going to mention three modes of using the breath this evening. I think there, are, well, two, uh, a few modes, and you see what you think. And then I'd like to save some time for questions, and you can ask about anything. Uh, it can be about the breath or not, and I'll do my best to point out how breath awareness might help and might not, or some of the issues involved with it. Because every method, including this one, has its limits, has its strengths. It can also be used to take to help you get free, and it can also be used to keep you enslaved. Okay. So the most simple one, the most obvious one, the one that is used most often, I assume is uh, probably will be uh, familiar to most everyone here is simply to attend to the breath, in and out, wherever. For some, it's the nose, sometimes the tummy, sometimes the whole body. Uh, I prefer that, in other words, experiencing the breath, breath awareness throughout the body. Um, there are lots of different ways of observing the breath. Some people will count it to begin with, or say in, out, or Thich Han has con uh, composed gatas, little dharma sayings to help you do that. But eventually, you drop all of that. There's no counting, there's no... Agatha's, uh, there's no in-out, no words. There's no mantras are key to it. At a certain point, the whole point is to establish direct intimate contact with what we call breathing. Now, this is called shamatha. I'm keeping the few people, some of you who are new, probably many of you are also new, even if you've been to CIMC. Um, you, you might be new to this. The shamatha is... Uh, is a common practice in all of the Buddhist teaching, in all the traditions. And it's translated as calming the mind, stabilizing the mind, helping the mind become settled and clear. Um, in short, to enable it to be a fit instrument of seeing. So we're, we're improving our ability to observe. Uh, the way we do it is we, the instructions are, the method is, to we view the breath as an exclusive object of attention. That is, while we're attending to the breath, however you're doing it, and there are many ways to do it, everything else is allowed to go on. But 
any time you're taken from the breath, meaning your attention gets caught up in something, typically about the future or the past, we learn how to just come back, come back, come back. And little by little, uh, we in, uh, we're enabled to fuse with the breathing. The awareness becomes one with the breathing, and when it gets really natural and comfortable, uh, it's, it's um, even the observer, the meditator, disappears, and it, it's a feeling of being breathed. Okay, what that brings with it, well, first of all, there, uh, the instruction, the method, and it's very important to be clear as to what method you're using. Sometimes people are not clear as to what they, and that's easy to understand now because there's so many methods around. It's just a giant supermarket. Not only, in, just Cambridge alone in the old days was enough. Now with the internet, you probably, there are probably kinds of um, uh, attention to breath that I've never even seen or heard of. I don't know. But uh, treatises on it, etc. So when people come here, the mind is, uh, I don't have to spell it out. It was hard even in simpler times. Even in ancient India, people's minds were wild to begin with. So you can imagine how it is now. Okay, so the method is, if you're clear on it, in shamatha, is we come back to it again and again. The mind wanders off. It gets caught up in some virtual reality. Uh, an imaginary future gets caught up, retrieves the past memory, and is, it's as if that's real. It's like a virtual reality. It's like time travel. You're traveling in that and feels like you're there, but there is no future, and the past is over. And we come back, we come back, and we come back. Little by little, uh, the coming back is really another way of uh, accomplishing what you hear so much of, is being fully in the present moment, because that's all there is. That's a, a crucial insight to understand that all there is is the present moment. The past is over. It doesn't mean that it, we don't have we have we do have a memory, but the event is over. It's stored in our computer, and the future is not here and never will be the way we think it is because it's an imaginary. When we get to the, what the real future will be, the present, and yet we uh, we've not our education has not included seeing that distinction. So a lot of our time is being lived in virtual time. And we're not in the present moment, even that, though that's all there is. So the breath being so utterly simple and natural, that uh, as we come back to it again and again, we're learning how to inhabit the present moment, to be fully in the present moment using the breathing. Because what you're mindful of, and you've heard that term, because Vipassana is central in Vipassana, you're always mindful of something that's already here. So even the past, that's a memory, that's here. If your mind imagines the future, actually that's here. Now you may get lost in it, but that's because you're dreaming. That's because you've identified, you've done time travel. I'm using, I don't know, maybe that, that that's kind of a nice term, isn't it? I stole it from someplace, but I don't know where. It's, it's not, you won't find it in the ancient texts. Uh, Probably science fiction. I don't know where, but time travel. Um, so again and again, uh, as you as you're with each breath, in and out, in and out, uh, the mind starts to become much more calm. As the breath calms down, that the breath is a powerful conditioner of the mind and of the body. It's and it's also conditioned by the mind and the body. There's it's uh, all three are conditioning each other. That, that is to say. Let's say if your mind is all upset, it will affect the breath. 
Now, if you can calm the breath down, you'll find that the mind calms down a bit. Uh, and the body can become naturally more relaxed because the breath is interposed between the mind and the body. It's a v- very beautiful location. So one of the values of breath meditation is it's already here. Uh, it's natural. It's happening. Um, and many people who come to, to practice Buddha Dharma have been burned by organized religions and don't want a term that comes from another culture. Don't give me a Sanskrit or a Korean or a Japanese or a Chinese word or anything of that sort. I just want to reduce my suffering, my stress, and so forth. Well, is the breath, uh, is, does the Buddha have a patent on the breath? It's just the breath. And so people can be very comfortable with that. It isn't for everyone. There are people who have asthma who, who, it turns out, this can be quite frightening to begin with. It's not appropriate. There are many other ways to enable the mind to become a clearer, uh, for its clarity of seeing to develop. Uh, the breath is one that I've used a lot, so that's why I'm talking about it. And uh, most people, you saw the show of hands, one way or another, it is part of your, uh, of your meditation practice. Okay, so in this one, shamatha, we're mindful of the breathing, in, out, in, out, in, out. Now, there's variation there. Sometimes people will say, try to improve the quality of the breathing by uh, some directing it a bit. Like if it, feels, if, the, if it feels a bit uncomfortable, you can do certain things to smooth it out. I favor not doing that. Uh, the smoothing out has a reason. In other words, when you, in, in a sense, you're interfering, not interfering, you're... Um, you're entering into the, the, the way the breath actually is and trying to uh, enable it to be closer to an ideal of smooth, harmonious breathing. When you do that, that makes it easier to be mindful of breathing, of course, because it's a more pleasant object. What's lost there, and I value uh, just allowing breath to just unfold naturally, not control it, not direct it, is you're beginning to train the mind to be with what's there, which later on, as we move through other possibilities, uh, turns out to be extremely important. Uh, now, granted, at the beginning, it can be more discouraging if you don't, uh, if you do that, if you don't uh, pin the breath down to a particular place, and if you don't smooth it out through some technique. Now, this is not to deny the value of, let's say, pranayama and yoga. It's a wonderful practice, but when we practice breath awareness, anapanasati, uh, if you want to read the whole sutra, it's Madhyama Nikaya 118. No one will read it, but I just mentioned it. Maybe there's one bookworm left. Anyway, um, so uh, that will vary. And in my own, my own preference is to let the breath flow naturally and to start to learn how to uh, not intervene, how not to control things. Yet people... Uh, hear the instruction, they understand it conceptually, and then they control it anyway, and then the people get upset. Uh, of course you're going to control it. Part of what happens, in my opinion, having listened to a few thousand minds and a lot of nostrils, is that the breath was not that interesting, unless you have a cold or you have asthma. But suddenly they find out the Buddha attained enlightenment using the breath, it has cash value. And so the ego wants to get in on it. Oh, the breath is something important. I thought it was just just breathing. It muscles its way in because it wants some credit. Well, it was doing perfectly all right without the ego. 
The breathing, we're asleep and it's working. It's looking after us 24-7. But now ego finds out it has cash value and it muscles its way in and it just wants to get some credit for it. Okay. Okay. I know it's a strange way of putting it, but that's what I've seen. Uh, but as you see that, you, if you try not to control it, then you get caught in, in an infinite regress of trying to control the, <coughs> the controlling, trying to, it's more control, and it's very frustrating. So what you can do is just become aware of that little bit of extra that the mind is uh, exerting. It's really trying to make it a little bit deeper or a little bit more shallow. And also you could see there's a self-consciousness that's trying to get somewhere with the breathing. Oh, you read in a book, this brings calmness. Uh, I want to be calm. I'm a nervous wreck. This would be great. Is this, this, this is what they mean by stress reduction, right? Uh, and so you have a goal of wanting to use the breath in order to get calm. That goal interferes with 100% breath awareness because the corner of the mind is result-oriented. It's watching the breath. It's, uh, you would call it in order to mind. The attention is on the breathing, and then every few breaths, well, let's see, I'm not that calm yet. Uh, the book says that, you know, if you do it, I've done it as much as uh, and the person next to me may be, but I'm not. This is baloney. It's another one, another hype. I'm going somewhere else. Okay. Uh, you see what I'm getting at? Okay. So breath awareness, full mindfulness of breathing is when you just hand yourself over to the breathing 100%. And everything else is happening, and it's fine. So that's shamatha, when it becomes very, very stable. And that's crucial, very stable. We call it samadhi. You probably have heard that term. It's a real steadiness. And then you have a really wonderful ally in practice because the mind is now, and it's got powers of observation that it didn't have before. It can look at suffering, loneliness, fear. Uh, now you have x-ray, uh, electronic tele- telescope, microscope, and so, so to speak, you know. Um, and so that enables you to see things more clearly and more deeply because what we're looking at is ourselves. It isn't the stars. And it isn't uh, looking at a, at, a, at a tooth to see if there's a cavity there. We're looking at what used to be called a soul. And maybe there is a soul, but in Buddhism you're not allowed to say that. <laughs> uh, it's politically incorrect. Okay. Uh, let's just say what's there whatever we think of as being me, okay? Um, so that is the first, the first approach that's quite familiar to you. Whatever the method is, what gives it its ability to help you is that you have to really commit yourself to the method. Once you've made it clear, and that doesn't mean forever or for the rest of your natural life or for two months, uh, let's say in a given sitting, this is what I've set for myself to do. If you're vague, the mind will just be all over the place. So that's one skill. It's a very useful skill. This skill, is sometimes called concentration, existed for thousands of years before the Buddha. I studied uh, yoga uh, for a number of years before coming to uh, the Buddha's teaching. And uh, there are yogic texts that are probably 7,000 years old, 6,000 years old, where you just focus on the nostrils and it's a good way to calm down. So it's been well known. Okay, that's one method. Now, the second method, now, the second method is where you don't use the breath anymore. This is much more common. 
where you drop the meth, you drop the breath, and now you just sit and watch the impermanent, uh, let's just say, watch everything come and go. That limits what Anapanasati is. In the Buddha's teaching of breath awareness, it isn't just concentrating the mind or calming the mind. It isn't just shamatha. It also is vipassana. How? How do, in other words, now, let's say you've developed, you're more comfortable with the breathing, in and out, where however you do that. You don't drop the breath, but the breath recedes in prominence. Now, as you're breathing in and out, simultaneously, at the very same time, you're awake to whatever is happening. So thoughts, let's say a thought comes and goes, you hear it, or a bird chirps, as you breathe in and out. Uh, it's no longer exclusive, it, so that you, you loosen your grip on the breathing. But the breath is happening all the time. It's like having a good friend. And it could, because while you're watching whatever is coming and going, the breath is there, in, out, in, out. And it helps awaken attention and then also to stabilize it. For example, it can be very helpful if you're looking at difficult mind states like fear, like loneliness, whatever it is that you don't want to see doesn't mean that everyone has to do this, but some people, it, in, some, in some cases, it makes a huge difference as, because as you're with the breathing, it's like it's soothing you as you're looking at something that is quite fright, that is very highly charged. And it's happening at this, everything's happening at the same time. Or is it's not like, then pe the typical question would be, well, how do you do that? It's two things. I'm with the breath, but I want to also be with fear. But I, no. Uh, first of all, if whatever, is, if fear is strong, you with fear, not the word, or whatever it is that you want, whatever is happening. But the breath is there already. It's not something you have to put there. And so, as you're with it, you're just at the same time. It's more comprehensive, all inclusive, panoramic words like that. So, as you're breathing in and breathing out, you're aware of what's there. And the breath, for some people, can be very, very helpful that way. Now, in the sutra that I mentioned, the discourse, the, uh, the Anapanasati Sutra, which is supposedly, let's assume it might be true, the Buddha attained full awakening using this. It wasn't just calming the mind. It was also using the breath to help liberate itself from itself. Okay. Now, so if that's so, in that method, it's... Uh, the breath is your comrade, your ally, right up to uh, uh, to really deep areas of freeing yourself from whatever it is that you're not free of. So that is that's uh, that's what's distinctive of what the in my in my understanding of what the Buddha has added. The breath is now in the service of awareness. It helps awaken it, and it also helps stabilize it. So far, so good. Okay. So um, that's one approach. So now there are at least these, what are the possibilities? First of all, most people, most Buddhist schools do give exclusive attention to the breathing. It's one method. It's pretty um, common. Common meaning just popular, used a lot. And it's um, helpful for many people. And the, the Buddha said it was very good, especially for people who think too much. Get it? <laughs> if you don't have... If you don't have that disease, well, then good for you. Find something else to suffer over. Okay. Uh, so uh, one method is shamatha. And I would say, it, this is a rough guess, 
90%, maybe 95% of the time. Then you drop the breath, and then you're aware of seeing everything arise and pass away. Arise, And that's the heart of vipassana, is seeing, if you really see impermanence, you're going to see emptiness of self. And you're going to see the inevitable suffering that comes about the mind's tendency to get fixated in a changing world. It's a head-on collision. It doesn't work. If everything is changing and you have no control over that, but you insist on it being a certain way or not being a certain way, and it, life doesn't care. It just insists on being exactly the way it is. And we have all these views and opinions of how it should be. Does it, well, if it works for you, whew, you're unique. But So that's at the heart of it. If you, if you see impermanence, you can't miss emptiness of self because... Uh, mind states come up that represent themselves as being you. A thought will come up and say, you're no good at this, that you never will be, you never were good at anything. Your mother and father, uncle, aunt, grand, they were right. You're just uh, a loser. And this is just another way to lose, meditation. So just quit before you feel bad about yourself. Yes, that's true. I'm a loser. Okay, it's just a thought. Okay, so if as you're breathing in and breathing out, if you see that a thought is just a thought and then it passes, that thought passes, then the next thought might be, that's not true. Look at all your accomplishments. You're a very successful person. You're a kind person. You're very uh, lovable and people uh, care about you and you've done a lot of good in the world. Yes, that's who I am. And then that one goes. <laughs> and then another one goes said, well, I'm confused. Which one is me? Then that one goes, and it keeps there's a, a trail of different versions of who you are. Well, which one are you? Okay, as you start to watch that, forget about the teaching saying that uh, of uh, emptiness of, or of self. What you're seeing is that the self, what we call me, doesn't have the solidity, the uh, endure, enduring quality that we attribute to it. And when you look closely, as the seeing gets clearer, you can't miss it. So it's not an ideology. It's not something you have to believe in. Like, I've uh, decided to become a Buddhist. I believe that there's no such thing as a self. It's another, another way. It just it won't help you. There's no wisdom in that. It's just another blind belief. Fine. And it'll give you a little bit of comfort, and then that won't work. And then you get a new belief. Well, I think I'll become a Rosicrucian. Maybe that one will work. No one does that anymore, right? Okay. Maybe Gurdjieff. No one does that either. You know, I'm dated. Okay. <laughs> Expiration date, 20 years ago. <laughs> For me. Okay. Um, so most people in the practice will then s drop the breath and switch and just watch. And that's the way it's taught. Uh, another way in which it's taught is how I just suggested. That is, you stay with the breathing, and that's pure anapanasati as a full method. That's vipassana. As you watch the breath, uh, the breath helps you observe the same things you were watching without the breath. If it helps you, then it can be terrific. Okay. Now, then, uh, that, that's pretty much it, because uh, as the pr practice ripens, there's a strong tendency it's not only, I've, I discovered it some years ago in my own practice, that any technique and method becomes um, contrived. And you see that there's control involved. And you see me is doing this in order to get that. Uh, and at a certain point, it's not necessary. There's a relaxed awakening. You can't force this, though. And it, it, the danger of me saying this is then you're going to now want to get that. 
and that's going go to go directly to jail, do not pass go. I don't know if that means anything, but it's monopoly. All right. I'm, I told you I've expired. All right. Do people still play that game? They do. So I'm not expired. I still have a little life in me yet. All right. Okay. Um, so there's the breath exclusively, shamatha, s- s- stronger, sometimes called samadhi. Uh, then panya, which is insight. Uh, you can drop the breath and then just the seeing, the clear seeing is enough. And then for some people, the breath is a wonderful ally uh, to, to seeing. When uh, it ripens, I found out by asking lots of people, it's not unusual to drop methods. It's not like a person drops them. It's like the method says, look, you don't need me anymore. If you insist on using me, I'll hang around. But you really don't need me. And mine has a Brooklyn accent. It was said, you're right. I don't need you. Bye. And there's just awareness. Finally, the whole trip, the entire journey, the, the real refuge is the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. It's all awareness. This awareness is something that all of us it's the deepest, um, it's our essence, if you want to call it that, original mind, original nature, so many names for it, Buddha nature, full awakening. In other words, don't underestimate awareness or mindfulness. It starts as just an ordinary capacity that all of us have. But keep doing it and watch what happens, especially you start noticing silence and spaciousness, and you learn how to value that and let that unfold. Um, how is the breath misused? Uh, the breath can be misused because people become obsessed with it as a method. And it becomes like the breath Olympics, where people uh, set the world record for continuous um, mindfulness of breathings. I, I went for a hundred hours without missing one breath. Fine. Are you any wiser? I, I don't know. Probably not. It's just that you're, you're good at that. That's a good skill. Now, if you apply it and watch, maybe it can be very, very helpful. So, uh, and you'll see that in sometimes in the teaching, I've fallen into it, I've seen others. You see people become preoccupied with the breath in and of itself, constantly trying to improve the quality of the breath, uh, talking about it endlessly. Well, it was the, it, the, ins- the out-breath became longer and then it became shorter and then I noticed this and I noticed that years later. Now, that can be helpful at the beginning because it's an indicator of your powers of observation. But at a certain point, the breath is valuable insofar as it's in service of insightful seeing. Is Okay. Now, then daily life, and then I'll drop what I have to say because I'm going to just in general point this out. Um, in daily life, the breath, since we're breathing all the time, are you? everyone's breathing here, right? So it's not an outrageous statement. Uh, it's portable. That means wherever you are, this method is just effort. It's, there it is. You're feeling upset. You're feeling bored. Uh, you get the mind is too complicated. Just the breath is there already. It's not like you have to decide to import uh, a method from uh, China or Japan or India. It's, it's already here, in, out. And you feel, especially as you get more comfortable with it and natural, it has a calming effect. Okay, so it can be used in this, in helping us stay awake throughout the day because those of you who are new may not know this, but the, the model of practice we use here is that meditation is not simply formal meditation, sitting on a cushion, uh, doing formal walking meditation and retreats, as valuable and precious as that is. 
they, that they are, whatever. Um, I've done lots of it, continue to do it, love it, but most of life is off the cushion. And so it's more and more the, the, it's designed to help it become a way of life, not merely a bundle or a bunch of techniques and methods. That's what we're trying to do here. That's why we started the center in the middle of Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> you don't know that either because no one reads the Bible. All right, no one reads. <laughs> Click it on Google it, you know. Okay. Um, that's all I wanted to say. In other words, uh, so we have to be clear. The breath can be useful in many different ways, and you have to be clear as to how you're using it. Now, also, is it helpful for you? Is it helping you with your practice? It is good method for some people. No method's good for everyone. None, including this. It really is. It's just an obvious fact. Human nature is varied. Our character is different at different ages. Different. It, it just so you, trying to find the right path. The, sometimes called the path with heart. You can feel the affinity that this is right, and it can change. Maybe it's fine for five or ten years, and then. It, it use, it's gone, and it might still be useful for someone else. So part of wisdom is understanding uh, the, the, the way in which your practice is unfolding, and is it helping you, uh, it is helping you to get free. And you, the only way you can find that out is by paying attention. So we're back to that one again, seeing accurately, seeing that a rope is a rope and a snake is a snake. Okay. Uh, ask whatever you want. I'll see if I can, if it's on the breath. Oh, just one last thing. Sometimes there's a question, can you just use breath alone as an insight practice? Because remember, I mentioned it, exclusive attention to the breath, shamatha, in, out, in, out. You can. How do you do that? By If you just stay with the breath, but now the emphasis is not so much Sure, you want to stay with it, but you, you begin to notice impermanence, anicca, in it. You can learn the law of impermanence on anything because impermanence is lawful in everything. The whole universe is, is arising and passing away. So wherever you look, but the breath is very close. It's right here. And you can see that an in-breath begins, operates, and then it disappears. Then there's a pause, then an out-breath begins. You also can begin to see how the qualities of the breath change how the breath is uh, smooth and then it's rough, it's coarse, it's a joy to be breathing, it's uh, painful to be breathing. You can see the whole that law worked out on just the breathing. So that, for some people, that can be convenient. It's even used, now this, for the new people, I'm taking a chance, but anyway, it's even used to, there's a, a very important practice in Buddha Dharma, in my opinion, highly neglected, called, uh, well, you don't need to know that, it's death awareness, Maranasati. In other words, we are, impermanence applies to us. Do you know that? If you have a body, it will age. It's just a natural law. You have, you're not being discriminated against. Not only will it age, it's, it's the, it starts wearing down. Like a car, starts, parts start wearing down. The knee doesn't like to, to do this, and the eyes, what, what, and the hear, what was that? And we need a new prescription. And then suddenly uh, we, we go to the refrigerator and what, why am I here? What do I want? Oh, some of you are nodding. Okay, that's better than nodding off, but okay. So th that lawfulness, now here's a contemplation that part of, I've had a fair amount of training in that, uh, is that you contemplate the breath to understand that literally our life is hanging by a breath. 
And so if the breath comes in and doesn't go out, it's kaput. If it goes out and doesn't come in, it's also kaput. And you start to realize, my. now some people get very, very frightened. So then you look at fear and you see that that also is impermanent. So that you see the law of impermanence at work and that at a certain point helps you free yourself from these uh, compulsive attachments, clingings and graspings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.